I would like for us to begin our prayer with these words from Isaiah. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that it will bear fruit in our hearts, that we will see it as the lamp unto our path, as our guide through each and every day, that your word might be burned into our hearts so that we live according to its precepts, that we understand the will of God in our lives each and every day. Lord, we know that the very life we have comes from your hand. And as Job said, you give, you take away according to your divine plan. Blessed be the name of God. And Father, we just come to you this morning praying that you will speak to us, that you will focus our attention on what you are saying. Lord, bless your word as it's proclaimed this morning uh, throughout this church complex and around the city of Reading. And we do pray for those, Lord, who have lost everything. Father, for the people of the church that was burned yesterday, we know, Lord, that you care for your people, and so we put your people into your hands. And pray for those that lost but do not know you, that they will come out of their physical losses and come into spiritual life, and that you will do your great work in the hearts of these people. Father, we commit this morning to you and pray that you'll be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. If we would turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Judges, I'd like to read beginning at verse 11. Judges 6, beginning at verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him, meaning literally turned toward him, and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in thy sight, then show me a sign if it is thou who speakest with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to thee and bring out my offering and lay it before thee. And he said, I will remain until you return. Israel is in the periodic fix that Israel got in throughout the book of Judges, having turned away from God. And God sent his hand of discipline upon, the, upon them, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other related individuals from out of the east. And they have subjected Israel to so much oppression that Israel is living like animals in caves and in holes in the ground to try to protect themselves from the Midianites. 
God has appeared to, to Gideon there, and, and he's, he's beating out this, this grain in a wine vat. And we talked a little bit about the wine vat last week and what they were like and where they were usually built and how they functioned. He, he was doing this, of course, to secure it so the Midianites wouldn't see that he was threshing grain because every time they saw this, they swept in and would take away the food that was being prepared. And while he was doing this, suddenly a person walks up and sits down nearby under the tree and watches him. And then, of course, this conversation occurs that we read about here. And, and the opening phrase, which we again talked about last week in verse 12, this person sits down and he says to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Of course, the ramifications of that are, are very interesting. And this, of course, takes Gideon back. And, and Gideon responds to the Lord by protesting. And we read that in verse 15. Oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Hold my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest of my family. If not a greater clan or an older brother, if, if these could not do it, how in the world could I? I mean, they had a very definite pecking order in those days. And so he, he gives this protest, and God extremely patiently listens through the whole protest. You know, God is far more patient than we are. Every, uh, you, you probably have noticed you get into conversation with somebody and, and they could hardly wait for you to stop talking so they can talk. And, and you can tell often they're not even listening to what you're saying because they're thinking about what they're going to say. And uh, this can be very uh, troublesome sometimes uh, to the person on the receiving end. Uh, but that's not how God is. He listens patiently and intently and absorbs everything getting in his hand. Of course, he knew who before Gideon would say it what he was saying. And, and then the Lord promised, I will be with you, Gideon. We read that in verse 16. But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. God was going to empower Gideon to do what God had specifically called Gideon to do, and it would be to Gideon a simple task, because this great horde of Midianites would be as if there were only one person standing to face the might of Israel and her God. Go in this my strength, God would say. And we talked last week about Gideon, you know, God said, go in your strength, and Gideon said, how can I do that? And God wanted him to say that because God wanted him to know you can't do it in your strength, but in my strength you can do it. And the enemy will become as if he were nothing. But Gideon is still not quite convinced of this, and neither would you or I be. If we're out washing our car and somebody sits up and uh, comes and walks up and sits on a rock next to you, you've never seen this person before, and they say, the Lord is with you, almighty whatever your name is. <laughs> You're going to look at this person and say, well, which loony bin did you come from, you know? What is going on here? Where are you from? Where are you coming from? In fact, we have a good phrase, don't we say, where are you coming from? You're off the wall. We have all kinds of wonderful little expressions that Gideon probably didn't use, but had he had them, he probably could have thought them at least. So I don't think Gideon can be faulted here for asking this stranger for a sign. I would like a sign that I know that it is really you, Lord, who is speaking to me. If Gideon was as low in the pecking order as he claims in this particular passage, we can understand that he would have serious reason to doubt that God was choosing him. It's just like today, if we think back to the first century when Jesus Christ was born, if, if you put yourself in the place of God and, were, and thinking about you were God and you were sending your son, 
Would you not rather send your son into the palace of Caesar Augustus rather than to some some teenage woman in a no-account town like Nazareth? I mean, humanly speaking, it doesn't make sense. But screwing our mind around so that we think the way God thinks is the only way we can understand what God is doing here. And so Gideon is, is casting doubt on this whole thing. How could God call me? I'm nobody. Why doesn't he call a mighty champion? Because in effect, he was being asked to become another Ehud or Barak. Now, I don't think you and I can understand that because we just read this passage and we say Ehud, Barak, you know. Sure, it's probably a significant thing. But we have to realize that those two men were in undoubtedly elevated by Hebrew folklore to the place where they were superheroes. Their great work was inflated to the place that they stood probably almost with Moses and Abraham, in some people's opinion anyway. And so for Gideon to think that he was being called to be as they were, it was just beyond his ability to comprehend. What is interesting, and I think we find true throughout Scripture, is that truly godly people, people through whom God works, are most likely to be people of such humility that they would have a hard time believing that God would call them to such a great work. I think that's a principle that applies to Scripture. God does not call the mighty. He calls the weak. He calls the humble. He calls those that are not impressive on the world scene. In fact, when we read about Jesus, the Scripture seems to teach us that Jesus was not a comely person. That Jesus was not this handsome guy you see in the films that are shown around the world. He was very ordinary and maybe even a little bit homely in his appearance. There was nothing about him that drew men to himself in his physical appearance. It was the dynamic of his personality, of the Spirit of God within him, that drew people to him. It seems that, to me, those who feel like they can go out and take on the world and the devil for the Lord are the least useful in God's kingdom because they have a sense that they can do it. They cannot do it at all. But in God's strength, the enemy becomes as one man. Gideon would learn this. Well, Gideon wants to validate the fact that this one speaking to him is truly Yahweh incarnate. And so he requests permission to bring him an offering. Now, if we were to humanize God, we'd say, all right, Gideon, if you have to, roll our eyes or maybe go, let's get somebody else here to do this uh, job. But that's not God. Patiently, God says, I will wait here. I will wait here, Gideon, until you return. The Lord does not take Gideon to task here. On the contrary, he demonstrates the patience of Almighty God. And of course, if we are honest with ourselves, we have to admit we have tried the patience of God. We do it fairly frequently. We have to be so grateful that God is patient and merciful. Let's read on and see what happens here. Verse 19. Then Gideon went in and prepared a kid, a baby goat, and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour, He put the meat in a basket and a broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them there. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread 
and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth, and he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace be you, be peace to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abizarites. What we discover here is Gideon is very serious about this offering. He isn't doing like we are, might be tempted to do sometime. We think, well, God needs an offering. Let's see, I think I have 25 cents here. He knows that if this is truly God, then he better not offer a cheap sacrifice. And, and as I read this, I, I, it came to mind David as he, as he, as he was at the uh, threshing floor of Aruna, and uh, where Aruna said, here, you know, use, use my threshing tools and, and my animal and offer it to the Lord. And he said, no, I will buy this whole thing from you because who am I to offer to God what is not mine? And so Gideon is not going to offer God a cheap sacrifice. Now, we have to understand, even though we read through Scripture and we see how animals are slain and offered to the Lord and it becomes a regular sacrifice, but again, understanding Israel is in famine. Israel is under oppression. The Midianites are coming in and taking all the grain and all the animals, except a few, of course, the older ones. And, and, and so, you know, as the, as the lambs, I mean, as the sheep have lambs and the goats have kids, why the Midianites, when they move in, they take all that stuff. And so for him to offer a kid is to offer a very rare item at this moment in time and to offer this unleavened bread because an epith of flour is equivalent to half a bushel. It's a lot of flour. When you consider that that kid, that baby goat, and that flour probably would fed a whole family for several days in the midst of a famine, this is a great sacrifice. He brought the cooked goat with its juices, we're told, in a, in a pot. He brought the unleavened bread to the Lord. I don't know, was he surprised when he came back and the Lord was still sitting there? The Lord had done what he had said. He was still sitting there under the terebinth, waiting for Gideon to come back. The Lord of the universe sat for hours on a rock under a tree, waiting for one of his creatures to come back with an offering. How many hours? How long does it take to go to a flock to pick a goat, to kill the goat, to skin the goat, to gut the goat, to cook the goat, to collect the juices, to prepare the flour, to bake it into unleavened bread. How long does that take? Well, you don't do it in five minutes. There were no microwaves in those days. It took hours. And of course, the question is, did Gideon do this all by himself? We know he had servants. We'll be coming to them pretty soon. Did, did he involve the servants or other members of the family? And if he did, what did he say to them about what he was doing? What are you doing taking this kid? We need this. What are you taking all this flour? It's all we have. How would he explain it to them? Well, the scripture is totally silent about that. So all we can do, of course, is surmise as to what the answers to those questions might be. 
But at the instruction of the Lord, Gideon took the meat and he placed it on a rock that was there, out there, probably, possibly under the oak. It doesn't say right there. He placed the meat, poured the broth over the meat and over the bread that was put on top of this rock. And then the Lord gave Gideon the sign he requested. This puny little creation of God has asked the God of the universe for a sign to prove that he is whom he claimed to be. God obliges. And we're told that he reached out the staff that was in his hand and he touched the rock. And the rock itself became a fiery altar. The rock gave forth flames that burned, consumed all of this flour, this big loaf of bread or mini bread loaves, whatever it was. And, and all of this meat was just totally consumed in this fire that came out of the rock. And the smoke rose up towards heaven as a sacrifice to God. And then when Gideon turned to, to the angel of the Lord, he vanished, just disappeared. More of a sign you want. Who can do such a thing except God? God alone. As we think of this miracle that God performed, to me, it reminded me of a miracle that we also know about in the first chapter of Isaiah. I'm sorry, of Kings. Got Isaiah on my mind here. First chapter of Kings, in the first Kings, the 18th chapter, beginning of verse 36, we, we know the story, of course. Elijah has been on top of Mount Carmel, and there's been a contest, a power encounter, if we would call it today, between the god of the gods of Baal and Ashtart, the gods of the people and the god of the universe. And in verse 36, we read, Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, today let it be known that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that thou, O Lord, art God and that thou hast turned thy, their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stone and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Again, it was a great sacrifice. Because remember, when Elijah made that sacrifice, they'd had a drought for three and a half years and who knows how far they had to go to get the water to drown that sacrifice that he put there to make it as hard as possible for this sacrifice to, to be burned miraculously. And yet the fire of heaven came down and burned the whole thing. And of course, somebody would come along and say, well, you know, it was an accidental lightning bolt. They were on top of a mountain after all, you know. Even a lightning bolt would not do what this flame from heaven did at all. And so what God did for Gideon, God would later do for Elijah and all of the people as they stood there on the top of Mount Carmel. Gideon, of course, was the only one to witness this event because the one, Gideon was the one to whom God was speaking. God was calling him. Gideon was filled with excitement and with awe. And then suddenly he remembered, this is God and I've looked him in the face. Woe is me. I'm a dead man. Fear became the primary Emotion that swept over him all of a sudden because I think he may have remembered Moses' words that we read in Exodus chapter 33, beginning at verse 17. And, Mo and the Lord said to Moses, 
And I will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, literally my afterglow. My face shall not be seen. I think it may have been those words that caused this fear to overcome Gideon at this moment because he had looked into the face of the angel of the Lord. The question here, of course, is did God violate his own warning? Did God set aside his warning from Exodus 33 in the case of Gideon? Of course not. Moses had asked to see God's glory. That's what God is saying. No man has seen my face in its full glory and lived. Gideon did not look on the unveiled glory of God because the glory of God was veiled in angelic human form. This, this person is called the angel of the Lord, but to Gideon, it was a human being sitting there. He looked fully human as, as Gideon did. And that's, of course, what was taking him back and causing him second thoughts here. And yet now that it was demonstrated this is God himself, this fear comes on him. Gideon was so overwhelmed that he built an altar. Around the rock, he built an altar to sanctify this place where the sacrifice had been consumed. And notice what he calls it. In the passage we read, the, the term given is the Lord is peace. He called it Yahweh Shalom. Why did he do that? Because back in verse 23, well, let's go to back verse 22. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Shalom, do not fear, you shall not die. And his heart was so filled with gratitude that he had had this opportunity, and yet the repercussions that might have come do not come, that he builds the altar to the Lord who had said to him, Shalom. Grace and peace naturally flow from God because they are his attributes. He is grace. He is peace. He is love. He is mercy. <clears throat> God doesn't have to conjure those things up and say, well, whew, I'm going to have to have mercy on this person. I want to zap him, but I better have mercy on him. No, it's his, it's his attribute to be mercy. God's attributes are grace and peace. And how often did Paul try to re recall to his Hearers, those who would receive his letters, that this is true. How many of his epistles begin with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Grace to you and peace. Shalom. I've, I've said this before. It is not just like we say, we, I don't know what you say, but when I was a kid, I found the easiest little phrase to say was howdy. <laughs> to say howdy to somebody, you know. 
And then you don't have to get into all kinds of stuff. You can just say howdy and it's acceptable. <laughs> uh, of course, it's short for how do you do. And uh, of course, we don't really want anybody to tell us how they do. We want them to say fine. And that way we can just keep right on going because we don't want to stop and talk to them probably at that moment. But when God says shalom, that is just pregnant with meaning. It just overflows with the grace and the mercy and the love of who God is. Poured out on his people. I'm sure for Israel, they got used to just saying shalom to one another, which became kind of like howdy to us today. But as it's used biblically, it has deep meaning. The writer tells us at the end of this passage that that altar was still standing. That altar was still standing. At the time that this book was being compiled, many, many years later. So the altar there under, you know, just, just an average little village. In fact, um, Ophrah, they, they don't even know where Ophrah is for sure today. They, they believe it's out in the middle of the, of the Jezreel Valley. But whenever you look at a map, there's a question mark after it. Well, Ophrah, was it here? Was it there? I mean, who knows? Little, a kind of an Igo or an Ono little village, you know, out there. And he's the youngest guy of, of the weakest clan, and, and he builds an altar, and it still stands, commemorating what God did for this nobody. Well, let's read on in the chapter and see what happens next, because God has done something for Gideon, and now God wants Gideon to do something. Verse 25, now the same night, it came about that the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull, and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants, and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it came about because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city, to do it by day, that he did it by night. Kind of a commando raid. <clears throat> the glow of his encounter with God was still upon Gideon. When God appeared to him, or spoke to him, I should say, from out of heaven that same night, to give him his first command, you have been chosen, you have been elected, elected the new Shofat, I have De demonstrated to you that it is I who have called you. Now, this is my first command to you. It was no small thing that God required of Gideon. And you might say, oh, well, you know, knock over a few rocks, cut down a little a symbol, you know, what's the big deal? <laughs> it's to fly into the face of hell. One of the principles that Jesus taught, which we find recorded in Luke chapter 12, is that from Everyone who has been given much shall much be required. Gideon had had the privilege of speaking face to face with the angel of the Lord. Few in history have been so honored. And of course, it was not because he was a great man. It was because God in his sovereignty had chosen to use this humble man. And of course, as you think about that, certainly Mary instantly pops into our minds. Mary who became the mother of the Messiah. Who was she? She was nobody. She was even less than Gideon. You have to remember in, in that society, in that day, women were not considered anywhere near par 
<clears throat> par with men, excuse me. And she was a teenage woman on top of that. And she was impoverished on top of that. And she came from Nazareth, which was Nowheresville. I mean, she couldn't have been any lower in the pecking order. Yet God chose her. God chose Gideon. Not because he was a mighty man, but because he was a man through whom he could display his mightiness. God gave Gideon a major assignment. Go and destroy the local altar of Baal. Now this takes us back to verse 10, where we read, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. The Amorite, the term Amorite is, as we have highlighted before, a generic name given for all these people. Sometimes they're called Canaanite, Amorite, um, for all these different tribes of people who were still living in the land in, uh, since the time of the conquest. And, and these people, for the most part, had not been converted from their old ways to worship the Lord God. Some certainly probably had, but most had not. And, and they were still worshiping these fertility deities known as Baal or Baal and Ashtar, his consort. And over the generations, the Israelites had come to tolerate this pagan worship. After all, they had to coexist with these people. Therefore, they didn't want to be, a, uh, didn't want to appear as narrow-minded bigots. So they had to be broad-minded. They had to be pluralistic like we are in our society today. God had, however, warned very emphatically that toleration, now, toleration is a good word when it comes to many things, but when it comes to compromising the word of God, it's a very vile term. And God teaches us that toleration leads to compromise. Compromise leads to apostasy. And that's the exact road down which Israel keeps going in these chapters in Judges. At first, it's just tolerance, then it's compromise, and then they're doing it with the pagans. That's the story, the way it keeps going throughout this book. Many Israelites were not just tolerating the existence of Baal over there. They were going up and bowing their knee to him and burning their sacrifices to this heinous God. Even Gideon's father, Joash had allowed the erection of an altar to Baal on his own property. Make the local pagans happy with you. Say, well, look, this little piece of my property, I'm going to use it for anything else. Why, nice little hilltop here. Why don't you just go ahead and put your altar up there? Now, the scripture doesn't say that Joash himself was actually worshiping Baal, although he may have been. It doesn't say that. But, but he has at least... <laughs> To, to put it as, as kindly as we can, he had a definite weakness in his obedience to God here. Because God would not have said to Joash, well, sure, we want to keep the local people happy, and I don't need that little piece of, over there. You can dedicate it to Baal as long as you dedicate this part over here to me. And we're told clearly in the New Testament, you cannot serve God and mammon. I mean, there is no way we can serve two masters. So Gideon was commanded to take his father's bull and a second bull, we're told, for the purpose of having the muscle power, it was the bulldozer of that day, and to tear down this stone altar to Baal. And standing next to the stone altar was this symbol of Asherah, which was usually, pardon the expression, a phallic symbol, and to chop this thing down. Then, in the place of the altar to Baal, he was to erect an altar to God. And you could have said, well, Lord, 
it wouldn't it be easier just to kind of dust this thing off and, and call this the altar to the Lord? No, it was desecrated. He had to tear the thing down and scatter the stones and bring new stones. I'm implying this, but I'm sure that's what he had to do and build a new altar with the stones that had not been used to worship Baal. And it's not because in the stone there was some kind of an evil uh, thing because the blood of, uh, of a sacrifice had dripped on this rock. It's because the people would understand God does not accept profane gifts. It's what is in the heart and minds of people that matters. And then he was to offer one of the two bulls on it. Now, if a kid was a major sacrifice, consider what a bull would be. A huge sacrifice to make. Given the scarcity of food at, at that time and the fact that the Midianites were ripping off all the animals they could find, it was a huge sacrifice. And yet God asked it of him, do this, Gideon. Well, Gideon, of course, viewed this as a difficult task. He didn't say, oh, piece of cake, God, I'll be, I'll be out there next half hour and do that. I don't think so. I think he considered a very serious thing because he was, in effect, going to thumb his nose at all of the pagan people. You know, in effect, worse, in fact. Tear down the altar. They really believed that Baal was God. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, uh, it's no big deal. Baal's just an invention of our imagination anyway, just a comic strip character. No. They were serious in their faith. You and I today can look at Islam, we can look at Buddhism, we can look at Hinduism, we can say in our hearts, how can a person with any brains worship that kind of a god? And yet they do. They do with all their hearts, and they're serious about it. We have to recognize that. These people were serious in their worship of Baal. But how could he do it? He could do it because in his mind, just a few hour back, hours back, was this mind-boggling encounter with God himself. And, and the, the flames leaping from the rock and consuming the sacrifice and the angel disappearing out of his sight momentarily convinced him to believe God's word and to do what God had commanded him to do. And let me end with this today, and we'll have to look at the details of what happened uh, next week. I, I think one of the lessons we can derive from this is that frequent encounters with God through Bible study, prayer, and meditation are as essential to us as they were for Gideon to keep it fresh in our minds that God is real and that God expects us to walk in obedience. I think that when we, when we fail to obey him, it's sometimes because we think he's far away. We think of God as up there in the hallowed hall somewhere and not living right here in this very room as he has promised to be in his word. He is here. And that how we think and how we act and what we believe has got to be based in his reality. Is he real? I mean, I could have felt last night, uh, so, uh, well, you were, you're, you're, some of you may be on the Simpson prayer link, but uh, Hazel Grant asked us, because Dr. Walmark had prayed over at the luncheon yesterday concerning this fire, that the fire would turn back on itself. The wind would reverse and blow it back, and, and I think that was a, a wonderful prayer, and, and Hazel Grant thought we ought to put this on the prayer chain, and so we did. And did the wind reverse and blow back? No. Do we therefore believe God is not real? I hope not. Our faith has got to be based in the fact that we pray the best we know how, and that God will do what is right. 
Will not the God of the universe do what is right? He will. And that we must believe. So God hears and God answers and God will hear and answer for Gideon. So next week, let's let's pick up with what Gideon does. He calls 10 of his servants together, which is kind of amazing. If he's the smallest clan, the youngest guy, where's he getting all these people? And, and then he does this thing. Then the reaction of his father is quite amazing. His father must have been a bit of a, you know, kind of one foot in this field, one foot in the other field. But God speaks through his father. Amazingly, he does. Fascinating passage.